everybody and welcome to Coffee with KK Harris. I'm KK and I'm super excited about my guest today. His name is Reuben Keith Green and he is a retired Lieutenant Commander of the US Navy. Not only that, but he is the author of this book and it is called Black Officer, White Navy. Now I heard about this book, I've been following some of your posts and we got introduced by a previous guest and friend of mine, Veronica Lawrence. And as I began to just see your posts, I became more and more intrigued. So I reached out to you recently. I said, come on, it's time. I need you on, I need you on the show. So I wanna say thank you so much for being here. Mr. Ruben Keith Green, it's a pleasure to have you. How are you? Thank you for inviting me and it's a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, thank you so much. Now, like I said, you've written this book. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. I mean, because, you know, just the, the Black officer, White Navy. Now, that, that must have uh, wrinkled uh, some noses <laughs> in the Navy. And I really wanted to know, why did you name this book, Black Officer, White Navy? <clears throat> Well, the reason I named the book Black Officer White Navy is because I was following the uh, lead of a, a naval historian named John Darrell Sherwood, who wrote a book in 2009 about the turmoil in the Navy uh, regarding race relations. Mm -hmm. And the title of his book was Black Sailor White Navy. Okay. He was writing about the period of time when my father was in the Navy. And I, I sort of took issue with some of his characterizations of uh, 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 perceived discrimination or discrimination. So I wanted to tell the story of a black sailor who served immediately following that period all the way up through the uh, mid nineties. So I figured if it was appropriate for a historian to call his book, Black Sailor, White Navy, uh, this was coming from both the enlisted and the officer perspective. So it was natural for me to call it Black uh, Officer, White Navy. I've gotten some blowback from the title, but once I explain it to uh, people, they have a better understanding of why I use the title that I did. Right. So why don't you go ahead and, and, and kind of give us a little bit of, of what the book is about. Now, I've read a little bit of the book. I didn't mm -hmm. get a chance to read, obviously, the whole thing. But what I was struck by is just the stories, the, the way you really shared. I felt really drawn into the book. Tell us a little bit what it's about, what people can expect when they read this book. People can expect to follow a young man who uh, joined the Navy with no high school diploma, mm -hmm. wanting to uh, serve his country and also find a way to make a living. Mm -hmm. So I joined the Navy as a high school dropout in 1975, immediately following the uh, Vietnam War era. I was in boot camp when Saigon fell, when the helicopters were lifting up off of the embassy, taking people out of there. I watched that in, uh, in boot camp. There are very few memoirs from African-American veterans in the mm -hmm. post-Vietnam era. Very few books, very few memoirs. There's only a total of about four or five. And two of those novels were written by people who didn't even serve in Vietnam, by African-Americans. So there was virtually no literature on the African-American or the black sailor experience in the Navy or the military. So after searching for it for a while, I decided to write one because people needed to understand what that time period was like, particularly when, it, when there were very few uh, Black officers in the Navy in particular, Navy and Marine Corps. And uh, so I wanted people to understand what that was like. Right. They can follow uh, 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 
a tentative, somewhat insecure 17 year old all the way through a mid-grade lieutenant commander with lots of sea time under his belt and uh, lots of significant accomplishments and see what challenges uh, that individual faced at each stage in his career. So, and which is you, which is amazing. So, so you go, you're, you're a, a high school dropout and you somehow managed to become a lieutenant commander. I mean, how does that, how does that happen? And during a period in our history where that, it, it would seem like you would have had to have a university college degree or something. It, what's inside of you that's different to push you to believe in yourself like that? What was- Well, there were two forward? things. One was I wanted to prove my father wrong because he told me that the Navy was too racist for me to join. And he was not signing the papers for me to join as a 17 year old. I went around him by having my mother and my stepmother uh, sign the papers. You know, when you're 17, your father tells you something, you immediately think about going in the opposite direction, which okay. is what I did. Turns yeah. out my father was a lot smarter than I thought he was. He had spent 15 years in the Navy, but I was, I was enamored with Admiral Zumwalt, who said there was no black Navy, there was no white Navy, there was only one Navy. So that was the one thing. The other thing was I had always wanted to be a naval officer. I read about, I read encyclopedias for fun when I was a kid. They called me the professor. So I'd look at the Navy uniforms in the uh, encyclopedias, and these guys look very uh, dapper and dazzling with all this gold and stuff. And I figured, yeah. um, I don't see any black ones, but maybe there's room for me. Oh, that's so beautiful. And there was room for you. You just mentioned a name, and I wanted to, to ask you about you said it says thriving while black and sailing second class in the post Zumwalt Navy. Zumwalt. Tell me, tell me. Is this Admiral a Zumwalt was uh, the first uh, Jewish CNO that the Navy had. He was the youngest man to be uh, selected as CNO. He got deep selected over like 30 or 40 senior admirals to become the chief of naval operations because they needed to shake the Navy's leadership up. They needed to make dragged the Navy into the 21st century. When he became the chief of naval operations, the Navy was having all sorts of problems, race relations, drugs, you name it. And he needed to loosen up the hidebound traditions in the Navy, and he did. And he was instrumental in getting minority sailors a fair shot in the Navy. So um, he's been a hero of mine for a long time. I read his, uh, his uh, memoir called On Watch, in 1976, it was published in 1976. So I read that one of his chapters, he had three chapters on personnel and the chapters on uh, African-Americans in the, in the Navy was called Sailing Second Class. And he went into great detail about what it was like. He was taught by one of my other heroes, which is William S. Norman, who was his minority affairs assistant. Zumwalt plucked him and asked him, uh, Norman was going to retire, and Zumwalt called him in and asked him if he would help him bring the Navy up to speed, and Norman gave him a list of 20 demands that he wanted to have met, and he called them demands, and Zumwalt agreed to all of them. So he said, all right, I can work with this guy. So they changed the course of naval history. Oh, that's wonderful, and he's a hero. So this is, so now, now, it, now I understand that. That's absolutely wonderful um, to see that there are people you know, that helped to change history, right? We need allyship. And, and isn't it interesting? It took a Jewish man and the first Jewish man in, in that space, right? So it took a Jewish right. man to help open the door for other uh, minorities. 
That's fantastic. Right. And and the and the most marginalized minority is the black man, as we know. Um, so so I want to take us. There's so many stories. Now you made a decision to retire from the Navy. We had a conversation prior to today and there was some heavy stuff going on that you dealt with. You wanna give us a little snapshot of what pushed you to make that leap after so many years in the Navy? Well, I had completed four consecutive sea tours. After I got commissioned in 1984, I was trying to play catch up. I wanted to get deep selected, early for promotion. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get command of my own ship. And I wanted to be that guy standing on the bridge with all the gold on uh, commanding my own ship. Uh, because of, uh, the Navy had a, a significant drawdown from the 600 ship Navy they were planning to a much smaller Navy. The competition for those slots got very keen. And there were guys that had much better education, much more time in the Navy and much better connections than I did. So those slots were going to those guys. I was actually too junior, I wasn't even in zone to become an executive officer on a, on a float combatant. I'd already been one on a hydrofoil, but that's a small, that's considered a department head tour. So, so I, went, point, and I, I have to interrupt. So we're talking 1984, you're only, well, in your, you're in your late 20s. Right, I got commissioned in 1984 when I was uh, 24, uh, 20, 26. 26. Yeah. I was a few years older than the average ensign, but I didn't look like it. Okay. So anyway, after I completed all these, all this sea time, I went to, um, I got a call. They wanted me to come to be an admiral's aide in uh, DC. Okay. When they, when they call you at home asking you to come take one of those jobs, they've got plans for you, but I didn't have a, a sponsor or a real mentor that I could talk to about that. So I turned it down. Oh, you didn't know. Right. <clears throat> and I went to shore duty, which should have been one of the easiest jobs I ever had in the Navy considering my experience and, uh, and what was going on with the job. But I walked in the door to the building and within you know three seconds of meeting the executive officer, I knew I was in trouble because I, I was informed that I was not going to be taking that department head job that I'd been ordered in there to take, which was running the telephone office, which was installing a new phone switch that had been rescued from the Philippines when Mount Pinatubo erupted. I was going to be assigned a job as a, a division officer's job, taking over something called total quality leadership implementation. And this was basically a job that the junior incident on the staff would have. And that job entailed two part-time subordinates and working out of a space that used to be a closet. So when I asked the executive officer, why the change? I've just talked to my sponsor 30 minutes ago. He said, well, the captain thinks you'd be a better fit for this job. I don't know what he was basing that on other than uh, having seen me because I talked to my sponsor and the Bureau of Naval Personnel had ordered me in to take this job. But once he laid eyes on me, he decided I'd be a better fit for this job that wasn't important and had virtually no responsibilities. So the first chance I got, I went to the admin office and looked at his biography and saw that he'd been born, raised and educated in the great state of Alabama and he graduated from college in 1971. So that gave me some insight onto what his thinking might be. Right, right. And it went downhill from there. Oh dear. And so, so however, you still rose in the ranks. So it went downhill. You still- right. Now, when this rose. happened, I was a Lieutenant Commander with 20 years in the service. When oh. that happened, I, was, I had 20 years in the service. This is after oh. completing my career. 
And this was the very last job that I was supposed to have. Okay, I'm so, so we are answering the question because as you were telling me this story, I'm thinking, is it, how old is he at this point? Is he only in his 20s? And so they're- No, I was 30, 37 20 or 38 years, at that point. So 20 years in the military and you're being treated like this, which is obvious to you because of the color of your skin. Absolutely. How do you, how did you handle that? <clears throat> well, it was one of those things where I had to make a decision. Do I contact the Bureau and make a stink about this? Mm -hmm. Or do I just do this job that is not challenging and then use that time to work on finish my master's degree? I was working on a master's degree in human resources development. So I said, okay, no problem. I'll just concentrate on this. Uh, this will be the easiest job I've ever had. Well, it, it took about two weeks for the captain to finally call me in to do an interview with me. And when he did, it was very uh, nonchalant. And he just casually asked me, uh, Keith, have you thought about going to department at school? And I was stunned by the question because he'd had my record for uh, at least two weeks. And uh, I said, excuse me. I asked him, you know, basically to repeat the question. And when he did, I said, Captain, this is my fourth department ed tour. I was the chief engineer on a frigate. I was the executive officer on a hydrofoil. I was the in-port training officer at the Mayport Naval Station, Desron uh, 8. And uh, the only reason I'm here now in this job is because I'm too junior to get an XO float job. And as I'm talking to him, his mouth drops open and his eyes get really big, like he's seeing me for the first time. And I said, after I explained all that to him, I said, didn't you read my record? Which is something that he should have done on the first day he got it. Right. And his answer was no. Well, a few days later, he announces at a staff meeting that he's going to use this superstar surface warfare officer that's just been assigned to him to run the telephone office. Now, right. before yeah. I was a slug, now I'm a superstar. Right. The only thing that changed is he stopped looking at the color of my skin and looked at my background. Right. And then he also announces that I'm going to, in addition to that, I'm also going to uh, assign him to run the facilities department, which was another complete department. So I was now getting two jobs, two challenging jobs, but I was only going to be paid for one of them. So I was going to be working twice as hard as any other department head. Did, you take, did you take it? He said to me, I, no, I didn't have a choice. You don't, you don't turn down assignments like that. But when he asked me, he said to me, after announcing this at a staff meeting with everyone present, I was blindsided both times. And I was annoyed when he says, well, I, I, I haven't asked you how you felt about that. And I was so disgusted. I just looked at him and said, well, when you get around to asking me, I'll let you know. Because I was not accustomed to being treated that way by my superiors, right. particularly one who didn't even bother to you know, open my service record. But he was operating on his assumptions and his upbringing from mm -hmm. when he was, uh, he was in college in 1968 when Martin Luther King was shot in Alabama. So yeah. it was a hostile uh, area and time period when he grew up. And I just yeah. believe he carried that with him into the Navy. Of course, we know, we know how the unconscious is. We know how that, you know, we are shaped by our experiences that, that we live in, in the home we live in, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we, you know, I love speaking with you. I love hearing your stories. And I know that this isn't going to be our last conversation. I want to take us to, um, you wrote this book. It sounds like there's so much rich. I can't wait to sit and really enjoy the 339 pages 
of this of this very important book. And you said something to me the other day. You said that it's important for minorities to write their story. Minority veterans, let me correct that, to write their story. Why is that? It's because there's a giant hole in the literature where these stories should be. It's hidden history. And I've had so many veterans come up to me. They've heard me talking to someone or they've heard me on the radio or, or something that I posted. And they've called me or they've uh, sent a note, sent someone with a note to my house. I had one Jewish guy uh, have someone. He lives in Connecticut. He's 92 years old. Mm -hmm. He had someone in Jacksonville come to my house, leave a note on my gate, said, this guy really wants to talk to you. And when I called him, he started telling me about the anti-Semitism he faced mm. in 1952 in Green Cove Springs in Florida and how that affected him for the rest of his life. I mean, he was talking and he sounded like he was back in 1952. Wow. And this was also coming directly from his commanding officer. People read my story and they think it's a one-off, but I get so many people, they will come to me and they will pour all this stuff out about how they've been done wrong how they'd been mistreated, how they thought about hurting someone or having to fight and spend money just to be treated fairly. Yeah. And then they sort of disappear. I say, well, you need to write your story down. I'll help you write your story. And they go silent. A lot of it is shame. I felt a sense of shame for a long time because of the way I'd allowed my last boss to treat me. The one yeah. that I just described to you was not the worst one. It was the one after that who was a bully. And I think it was a sociopath. And when I stood up to him, he made it his business to make my life as miserable as possible to the point where I filed a five-page discrimination complaint against him. And I don't bring a knife to a gunfight. It was thoroughly documented. I had uh, uh, witnesses. I had enclosures. I had documents. You know, I was, you know, when you strike at the king, you don't strike to wound. You strike to, uh, right. you right. know, to kill. And filing a complaint against your superior officer is not something you take lightly because re right. Retaliation hammer is bigger than any tool in your toolbox. Right. So uh, I want people to understand that if you take the time to write down your story, your family will know what happened to you and why you may have some of the, the quirks and personality traits that you have. Hmm. The organization that you work for cannot say that, well, these things didn't happen because they're your experiences. And it will also teach other people what to look out for in terms of their own career and fighting their own battles. Uh, so it does a service to both yourself. It's a narrative storytelling is a, is a form of healing. That was told to me, Dr. Jonathan Shea, who wrote the book Achilles in Vietnam about the trauma that Vietnam veterans faced, right. uh, the moral injury, which is his, they, calls, uh, they call moral injury the signature wound of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. But mm -hmm. it was also a signature wound in Vietnam. So telling your story is both a form of healing and a form of getting these stories out into the world so that historians, researchers, veterans, veterans groups, and the military can understand what the minority experience is like or has been like. This, no, that brings me, uh, I think that's so important. Thank you so much for that. You know, the, the thought, the words that came to my mind as you were speaking was that um, I, I wanted to kind of end on this question, which is, you know, it sounds like that in the military, in the service, that um, silence has been seen to be golden during your era. Do you feel that anything has changed? From what Not at all. Wow. I think uh, speaking up 
while you're in uniform or working for the government comes with a tremendous amount of risk because their retaliation is a foregone conclusion. It is, it is the number one fear of people that file complaints mm. and it can damage your career. You may win the battle, but lose the war, mm. but you have to decide how much are you going to put up with in order to continue to progress or how much can you change by speaking up because people are watching you. You're going to lose a lot of allies when you start complaining about your treatment. And I'm not talking about little nitpicky stuff. Right. Say, you know, pick the right hill to die on. You know, right. you, you have to be determined that when you plant your feet, you've planted your feet on solid ground. That's great. Thank you so much. Just this short conversation has been so rich, uh, Ruben. Black officer, white Navy by Ruben Keith Green is worth the read. It is worth the read and I love that you said, talked of the importance of minority veterans to tell their story, to write the story down. It, you, you don't wanna be disappeared out of history. This will help change history. And I wish you all the best. I enjoying your retirement and everything. It's been such a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for inviting me, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you guys for being here. Thank you for listening. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, you're probably going to hear the whole thing. I will have to edit it down. So on the podcast, you will hear the whole of this interview. And hopefully, I will get Mr. Green back in here with me so we can have another extensive conversation, but on the podcast. Until we meet again, you guys, take care. I'm KK Harris. I'm bye for now.